Good morning, everyone. Anne, is this microphone okay? Where's Anne? Yeah, okay, great. Good to see you. Good to be back. It's a year, almost a year exactly since I last stood here. Uh, hard to believe, but time goes really quickly. And um, lots happened since we last saw you. All kinds of things, I'm sure, on your side as well as ours. Um, just for those of you who don't know me, um, Grant, my, um, Grant Walton, Elizabeth Walton, we used to be here uh, in leadership for many years, been part of Church of the Nations and New Creation uh, since about 1982, and walked a long journey together, still part of Church of the Nations, because you don't belong to Church of the Nations by signing up on a piece of paper, you belong by relating, by relationship. It's not a denomination, it's a relational family. And uh, I want to emphasize that because what I'm about to say next might surprise you. I'm an Anglican priest now, and uh, I'm still part of Church of the Nations. Isn't that amazing? And uh, we still see Tony in Maryland on a regular basis and have a lot to do with one another and others in Church of the Nations. But we live in uh, a lovely little city in the Midlands of the UK called Nottingham. Um, I am a priest there in a local church where I have the opportunity on occasion to preach where people have stood and preached the gospel for a thousand years. I want to say that makes you feel really, really small. Just to put things in perspective, we are just a tiny part of a very big story and only a very small part of it. And there will be others after us. But uh, my full-time uh, job is as a university chaplain. I am the chaplain to the University of Nottingham where I have about 50,000 students and 10,000 staff members to look after. So that keeps me busy. My wife is a professor of education and uh, that's one of the reasons, or the, actually the reason, why we moved across there for that opportunity. And so we are still very much South Africans. We had every intention of being back here on a regular basis until COVID came up. Um, now things are back to normal. We're beginning to travel a bit, and it's really good to be able to come back and see everybody as well as visit different parts of the country. I know you're in the middle of a series, and I... Actually, today, I don't want to focus in on anything particularly specific with regard to that series. I want to give you a big picture view of something, a kind of narrative of thinking that can shape how we see not just the area of sexuality, but our lives in general. One of the things I've come to the conclusion about over many years is that we all have stories that go on in our minds about the world and about how the world works. We have stories in our minds about God uh, and how God works towards us and how he treats us. We have stories in our minds about one another. And whether we like it or not, we all have those stories and we all live out of them, sometimes unconsciously. In fact, most of the time, subconsciously. They shape our actions, they shape our relationships, they shape how we live our lives. And so I'm one of those kind of people who's really interested in the big pictures and how that shapes who we are. And I want to give you um, an outline today, which unfortunately we don't have a lot of time to go into lots of depth about, but it's not really rocket science. And if you can just take these points and dwell on them a bit, meditate on them a bit, pray them through, talk about them with others, um, I really believe you'll find they can become really helpful to not just you as an individual, but to 
the community, the church as a community. And by the way, I just want to say, Paul and Maline and the elders here and the team that stand with you, I'm really just so proud of you. You're doing a great job. And it's uh, wonderful to see what's happening in this local church. So carry on. Move forward. There's lots to be done still. So we're in the Easter season. If you follow the lectionary or the church calendar in any way, and actually it's a very useful thing to do because it helps to remind us about the story of which we are a part. That's what the lectionary and the church calendar does, right? It reminds us that we are part of a story that is not about us, but is about God. And we are currently in the Easter season. I know that is hard to believe for some because we've, you know, Easter was a while ago. But until Ascension, the day of Ascension, we are in the Easter season. And so I'm going to give you five words today that kind of come out of some of that, uh, have to do with the kind of Easter season, but also the bigger picture. And I'm not, I don't have a PowerPoint. I'm not complicating things. I'm just going to talk to you. I hope that's okay. Make some notes, and then if you need to, I'm happy to have a chat afterwards. But I'm going to give you five words that have to do with this big story of who we are, and I'm going to center on something that I've entitled being human. Being human. What it means for us to be human. So the first word is this, creation. Creation. We probably, many of us, most of us, are all familiar with the opening verse of Genesis. In the beginning, God created, right? The heavens and the earth. And then repetitively throughout Genesis 1, there's this little phrase that keeps occurring. Do you know what it was? What it is? God saw that it was good, right? Each time something is created, God saw that it was good. Oh, my computer wants to do its screensaver, even though I told it not to. God saw that it was good. And then we have this part. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And there's this big picture thing, of God creating humans in his image. Actually, that phrase in the Hebrew, as his image. Humans created as his image. We are created as the image of God, placed on the earth to represent who God is. Right? A bit later, God formed man from the dust, a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. There's something about God getting the dust of the earth like a potter and shaping a human being with his hands out of the clay. It's like an intimate picture of God's involvement with the formation of a human body and then breathing his life into it so that the, the person, the human, becomes a living being created as the image of God. Now, there's something about that that we sometimes 
don't put together that I want to just drop into your mind. God creates a physical human being from the dust of the ground and says that that human being is his image on the earth. Right? Look around you. The image of God. Yes? This. Somehow, the image of God. One of the reasons, in fact, probably the main reason, that God says in the Ten Commandments, you shall have no false idols or false images, is because God already has his image. In the temple, it's us. You see, the language of Genesis 1 is temple building language. It's ancient Near Eastern temple building language. It's typical of the kind of language that was used when a god was building a temple or a temple was being built for a god. And then the image of that god would be put in that temple to represent the god. Don't get all tied up on the days of creation and how the earth was created and all of that because that's not the story that's being told in Genesis 1. The story that's being told is that God was creating for himself a place to dwell, a temple, and then put his image in that temple and guess who the image is? At least meant to be. It's us. And you shall have no other image because God has his image in the temple. The fact that we've messed it up and tainted it and corrupted it is another story, part of the story. But that was God's intention, that we would represent him on the earth. And so he gives the human beings the task of stewarding the earth and bringing order to it and bringing his glory to bear in the earth, in the temple that he had created, in the cosmos, the physical cosmos. And that's something else I want to emphasize. The material cosmos, the world. And at the end of it all, there's a little addition to the phrase that keeps being repeated in Genesis. Do you know what that is? God looked and saw that it was very good. It means totally fit for purpose, well-suited, what it's meant to be. This is a very important story, part of the story for us, and it's the opening part of the story in the Bible. Because there are a lot of people, even today, who think that this physical planet that we live on, that these physical bodies that we are, are not good. That we should be something other than human. But the biblical point of view is that we are human and meant to be human and it's good. It's a good thing to be human. 
And being human means having a physical body. How many of you know the Bible wasn't written from our point of view? It was written from an ancient Hebrew point of view. Yeah? Why do we spend so much time then putting our ideas back into the Bible? Instead of asking what they understood by it and then seeing how we fit. See, for the Hebrew biblical mindset, we are not human apart from our bodies. That might come as a shock to you. Because our entire culture is built on a philosophy that says this material world is not a good place. That we are meant to be something else. That we're meant to escape this material world. Now, there's been quite a resurgence of those kind of philosophies, even in kind of religious circles. We'll help you escape being human so that you can be reunited with the light of the cosmos, which is where you're really meant to be. Because this is a prison. Come to us, we'll give you some special knowledge that will help you to escape. We've got the secret. point that the Bible makes is that we are meant to be embodied creatures. God created us like that. And he created the universe to be material. And we are so saturated in our thinking with this idea that it's bad and that we need to escape it and become something more than human, that it's easier for us to believe in a kind of disembodied spiritual world somewhere than it is for us to believe that God wants us to be fully human. Much easier. That's the first word, creation. The second word, incarnation. In the beginning, you've heard that phrase before, but from a different book this time. Which one? Gospel of John. Because the Gospel of John is recapitulating the creation narrative of Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Christian faith talks about God taking on human flesh to come amongst us. And that had to do with the fact that we tainted, corrupted the image of God in ourselves and in the world through sin. Let me just say something very quickly here about sin, although I hadn't intended to, but I think it's worth mentioning. 
we get often really focused and caught up on the things that we call sins, you know, the actions, the little things that we do that we know are wrong. You know what? Those are not the problem. Sin is far more insidious and pervasive. Those are just little symptoms of a massive force, if you like, behind things that now govern our world. And we only really appreciate how bad it is when we try to change it or get out of it. And then we realize the immensity of what we're dealing with. And so God takes on human flesh. Now there are many stories in ancient myth about God's taking on flesh, taking on human form. Usually, almost I think exclusively probably, to get their own ends, which usually involved political power, in the pantheon of gods, manipulation, control, using humans as pawns, sleeping with human women or men. But this story, of which we're a part, is different. Because in this story, God takes on human flesh to come and serve us, to give his life willingly, to show us what it means to be really human. That's why John recapitulates this creation narrative. Because if you read the whole of the Gospel of John, he's hinting at a recreation that Jesus institutes. If anyone is in Christ, she is a, the old has gone. Behold, the new has come. Because the story is about God recreating. And so, he doesn't come amongst us as a spirit being, as an angel that appears and disappears. He takes on human form, the ultimate validation of our humanity. Just think about that for a moment. The ultimate validation of our humanity, that God becomes human to dwell amongst us. The early church fathers, I think it was uh, Irenaeus actually, the very, very early church fathers had the saying, God became man that man might become God. Now, not in the way that it's often interpreted today. I'll say more about that in a moment. But the idea of God coming amongst us in human form, validating our humanity, 
affirming who we are as physical human beings. Because the third word goes a step further. Creation, incarnation, death. Jesus dies a physical death on a cross. God experiences human death. Yes? People have been looking for a way to explain this for thousands of years. No, he didn't really die. He fainted. Good luck with that one if you understand anything about crucifixion. They hid his body. They stole his body. That's what the women first thought when they came to the empty tomb, right? Logical enough. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm afraid I wouldn't put my life on the line the way the early disciples did and experience the persecution and horror that many of them did for somebody whose body just got stolen away and hidden. Not me. I'm not brave enough. Maybe you are. But I'm not. God in the flesh, God in human form, dies on a cross, experiences human death, so that ultimately we don't have to. Because of the next word. Any guesses on the next word? This is a sharp line here. They're getting the words before I'm even saying them. Resurrection. To Luke now. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. I know we've come, just come out of Easter. Have, have you ever just stopped and thought for a moment about what was going on there? There's another explanation that people have had is that the disciples just had a vision. An apparition appeared in front of them. Because you know people don't rise from the dead. And they don't. The disciples had a problem because the Jewish people of the day really did believe that there was going to be a resurrection. They believed that there would be a resurrection at the end of the age, the end of the world, when God came finally to bring his judgment and set all things right. problem is here was Jesus standing in front of them in human form resurrected which meant that the resurrection and therefore the end of the age had already begun now that's one to get our minds around whenever anybody asks me are we living in the end times I say yes we are when did they start right here 
when Jesus was resurrected. Because that announced that the new creation has begun. And here's Jesus standing in flesh and bone and telling his disciples, touch me. See that I have flesh and bones. I am not a ghost. Jesus is resurrected in his human body. Not as a ghost. Not as some kind of funny thing. Not as an angel with a harp. Now granted, that body can do things that ours can't yet do because the doors were locked and he appeared in the room. And he did that several times. You find this hard to get your mind around? You know, people often say things like, oh, it doesn't make sense, it's not logical, it's not possible. I was a physics teacher before I went into ministry. So, I mean, it's all beyond me now, but I often read kind of articles around what's going on in the world of science. If you think Christians believe some weird things, you should read some of the things that some physicists believe. My goodness me. They... We have got nothing on them. I'm serious. Apparently the mathematics says it's possible, so it must be possible. Well, the mathematics also says it's possible for my body to walk through that wall. I just can't do it at the moment. One day I will. Come and see. Now somebody was missing. Who was that? I feel so sorry for Thomas. Who's got a nickname here? How am I doing time-wise? I didn't even look. Who's got a nickname here? Come on, don't lie to me. Who's proud of their nickname? I was called the Rev at school. Or Reverend Blue Jeans. That's why my email address to this day is Rev Grant. Now I'm a fully licensed Rev. I always feel sorry for Thomas. Here's somebody who's gone down in history being called Doubting Thomas. Poor guy. All he wanted. Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples said, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where his na- the nails were and put put my hand into his side, I will not believe. In fact, what he said there, that's quite a polite way of saying it. He said, I want to shove my hand into Jesus' side. Shove my finger into his wounds. A week later, now remember, the first, remember the first people to report Jesus' resurrection were not the men. That's a whole different message, which I'd love to preach, and I'm not going to go down that one now. But it was the women. Jesus chose women to announce his resurrection, and the men didn't believe them, which continues to be the case today, (laughs) sadly. 
The men didn't believe them. So poor old Thomas. A week later, they were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Shove your finger here in my hand. Shove your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said, My Lord and my God. Jesus was resurrected in physical form and his disciples held him and touched him. And other parts of the Gospels describe when he had meals with them and ate with them. I don't know how any of that works. All I know is that's what happened according to the Gospels. And I want to say something really crucial here. You cannot call yourself a Christian if you do not believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. It has always been one of the central, there are a few central tenets of the Christian faith, much fewer than many believe. Nowadays, everybody shouts and yells at one another about things and calls one another heretics if they don't believe certain things, but actually this is one of them. Christians have always believed in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's central to the Christian faith. And there are people today who don't believe in miracles, don't believe in things happening like that, and so they've tried to extract all of that and just be left with nice moral way of living. That's not Christianity. Christianity is not a nice moral way of living. I should say more about that. Sometimes we get so wound up I'm not saying it's not important. Don't mishear me. Sometimes we get so wound up about the things people do. You know what the problem with the parable of the prodigal son is? It's not about the prodigal son. It's not actually even about the father. You know what the parable of the prodigal son is about? The self-righteous, smug, stuck-up elder brother. And churches are full of them. And I'm in danger of being him all the time. Christianity is not a nice moral way of living. It's about the resurrection of Christ in physical form that announces the new creation, that God is up to something far bigger than all the little things that we often concerned about. That's why Paul says, if the resurrection didn't happen, he says this in 1 Corinthians 11, you can go and read it. The resurrection didn't happen, we are the most pitied people on the face of the earth. Because Jesus' resurrection is our hope of resurrection, and that's our ultimate triumph. Our ultimate victory is resurrection. The end of the age, the end of the end times, every human being that has ever lived will be resurrected physically to stand before God and give account. Not as some spirits with a harp, 
Because God is not doing away with this place. He's recreating it and making it new. And that's why the first verse of Genesis starts in the cosmos and the last verse of Revelation, the last chapter of Revelation, ends on planet Earth. Because this is our destination. We are meant to be human. Your destination is not some place called heaven out there. Your destination is heaven on earth, which is why Jesus said, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because God has never abandoned it. Once again, it's easier for us to believe in the kind of super spiritual. No, I'm serious. It's easier for us to believe that than it is to believe what I'm saying to you. And yet what I'm saying to you is part of apostolic Christianity. If you don't believe me, look up the early church fathers and go back as far as you want and read it. Because they believed that. The apostles believed it. The early church fathers believed it. Resurrection. And the last one. After resurrection, ascension. The last part of the Easter story and the last part of our salvation. Hear me when I say this. Our salvation is not just about Jesus dying on a cross. It's about incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension. Because the ascension means that Jesus is ruling and reigning today, sitting on the throne. After this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They watched him go. I don't think that means up there, by the way. I think it just means another dimension. Because how do you describe something that you don't understand? Heaven could be right here amongst us now. We just can't see it. Every now and then, God opens eyes to see into something. And here's the important verse in 1 Timothy 2. There is one God and one mediator between God and mankind. The man, Christ Jesus. If you've been following me so far, you'll realize that this is the, is the ultimate conclusion of this part of the story. There is a man sitting in heaven on the throne. His name is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And that's what the early church fathers meant about us, about God becoming man so that man could become God. Because in Christ, we are caught up to heavenly places. It's in Christ that our, our identity is redefined and we are caught up into the Godhead. Human flesh, if you want to put it that way, is represented in the Trinity right now. Is that mind-blowing? I don't understand how it fully works. But that's Christian teaching. The man, Jesus Christ... And when we're caught up, when we're resurrected and caught up, our bodies, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, will be changed in an instant. 
from mortal to immortal, from corrupt to incorruptible. What sin has done to this world will be undone finally. It will be recreated in its fullness. We are not escaping from here to get to some place better where we don't have to be human. We are meant to be human. And so many people have a negative view of what it means to be an embodied human being. Well, I've got news for you. You're going to be an embodied human being. If you follow Christ, you're going to be an embodied human being for the rest of eternity. So give up the harp. Don't reserve your place on the clouds. Once again, we're so saturated with a non-biblical way of thinking that it's very difficult for us to get our minds around this. But it's a story that validates our humanity, who God has made us to be. And the fact that we've twisted it and perverted it and corrupted it. God doesn't hate us and our humanity. He doesn't hate the fact. What he hates is the sin that destroys us. The, things that, the thing that makes us less than we are meant to be which is fully human. That's what Irenaeus said. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. Are you fully alive? Two things in closing. Learn what it means to be human in Christ Jesus. One part of that means just getting on and doing the stuff that comes with human life, like work. Yes? All the nitty-gritty things that just make human life work. Everybody wants the glory, hallelujah, and the lightning and the thunder. Nobody wants to just get on and make life work. Because somehow there's this thing that says we ought to be more. Well, yes, we ought to be more in Christ Jesus, but more doesn't mean being spooky woohoo. More means being faithful, righteous. why Paul says whatever your hand finds to do do it with all your might serving God not as man because you're meant to do that you're meant to work and work hard and do it because you're serving God not because there's somebody you're trying to impress although it's nice every now and then to get some yes Get on with the stuff. I love being human. 
I hope I'll carry on saying that in a few years' time because things are starting to get a little creaky at the moment. I don't want to be a spirit on a cloud somewhere with a harp. I want to be a human being because God created me to be a human being. I want to reflect who he is with everything that I am. Not as some nebulous, airy, fairy thing. I want to look around a room and see the variety of everybody that God's created and see his glory in everybody's face. Because of the glory of God as a human being fully alive. So here's my challenge. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This thing, this physical thing, offer it to God. All of its failings, all of its flaws, in the knowledge that the good news is Jesus has taken care of that massive force called sin. that leads to death. And the fear of death makes us do things that we shouldn't really do. But we do them anyway. We no longer have to fear that stuff. We're no longer under its power if we're in Christ. So we can offer our bodies, sexuality and all, as a living sacrifice to the one who created us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. God bless you. Shall we pray? I just want to give you a few minutes, a couple of minutes in the quietness of your own heart to respond to God. It doesn't have to be anything very complicated. It could just be God help me. It might be something very specific out of what I've shared this morning. Don't be afraid of the silence, but let's just be silent for a moment. Gracious Lord, thank you that you 
have created each one of us to be human, to be fully human. Thank you that you came amongst us in Christ Jesus to show us what that means, what that looks like. Wherever we are on our spiritual journeys, Father, I pray that as this week unfolds, you would help us to become a little bit more of what that means, to look a little bit more like Jesus, to be a little bit more of who you've made us to be. to be a bit more secure in being human. To offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to you, which is our true worship. And that wherever we find ourselves this week, we might serve you in the mundaneness of everyday life. For Christ's sake I pray. Amen.